Well, thanks very much, uh, Professor Wu, for that uh, very generous introduction. Uh, can I uh, thank the Institute of East and West Studies at Yonsei University for inviting me here to uh, speak today? Uh, and to all attending students, uh, I know you have uh, choices as to how to spend your time, and thank you very much for taking the time to be here today. Uh, as Professor Wu mentioned, I'm uh, representing the Australian Treasurer as our uh, Governor to the Asian Development Bank for its 56th meetings of the Board of Governors uh, in Incheon tomorrow and the day after. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be making my first visit to the Republic of Korea, uh, not just because my wife and I compulsively watched Squid Game, uh, not only because my three boys desperately hope that their father will uh, return from Korea entirely Gangnam style, uh, and they're also hoping that I'm going to snap a selfie with New Jeans, uh, whose performance at the Australian Development Bank meeting reception uh, will show the VIPs who the real VIPs are. <laughs> OMG indeed. In Australia, the cultural influence of the Korean wave, Hallyu, is phenomenal. In fact, Korea's cultural importance is on par with its economic importance to Australia. Our bilateral relationship is underpinned by a shared vision for an open, prosperous and resilient Asia-Pacific region. South Korea is Australia's fourth largest two-way trading partner, our third largest export market. Growing our economic, trade and investment ties with South Korea is a key priority for the Australian Government. We operate under a free trade agreement, the details of which I'll discuss later. We also benefit from the Australia-Korea Comprehensive Strategic Partnership, a program of enhanced bilateral cooperation under three pillars, strategic and security, economic, innovation and technology, and people-to-people -people exchange. The topic of my talk today is choosing openness and regional partnerships to boost economic dynamism. Since the agricultural revolution, one of the keys to prosperity has been specialisation. None of us make our own running shoes. None of us fix our own teeth. None of us build our own cars. We gain from living in societies where people specialise in what they do best and work together to produce complex goods and services. And so too, it makes sense for countries to specialise and to encourage global commerce. The free flow of goods and services has the potential to make people around the world healthier, wealthier and wiser. For medium-sized economies like Australia and South Korea, the benefits of specialisation are all around us. Hospitals are packed with imported products, from machines to vaccines. Much of what's sold in modern supermarkets comes from overseas. Trade brings new ideas, and trade challenges local firms to serve their customers well. New migrants and foreign capital have also helped to fuel the economic success of South Korea, Australia and the world. Now, openness isn't a panacea. Openness on its own won't solve climate change, social inequality or a lack of trust. But openness helps push societies in the right direction. As the United States founding father Benjamin Franklin once put it, no country was ever ruined by trade.
Today in Incheon, the Board of Governors, the Asian Development Bank's annual meeting, is about to start discussing these issues. The theme of this year's annual meeting is Rebounding Asia. Member countries are looking for the best way forward to rebound from the global economic downturn. For Australia, the rebound will require us to focus on building resilience and dynamism into the economy. We choose openness, engagement and strong regional partnerships to achieve this goal. And by doing so, Australia aims to lift our living standards while bolstering our capacity to navigate uncertainty around future pandemics, food security, climate change and shocks such as Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine. South Korea and Australia are strong voices for engagement. And right now, engagement needs all the friends it can get. The pandemic was good for isolationists. It was good for xenophobes. And it was bad for globalisers and internationalists. That's dangerous because openness doesn't just foster economic growth. International engagement can help alleviate poverty and help extend the buying power of low-income families. It's my belief that Australia and the Republic of Korea should continue to work together to maintain strong and sustainable regional trade, investment and migration. In so doing, we can continue to lift domestic living standards while bolstering our economic resilience. And, as Australian Foreign Minister Penny Wong says, strengthening our ability to exercise agency, contribute to regional balancing and decide our own destinies. The remainder of my talk will focus on three areas. First, I'll provide a short comparative analysis of our country's recent economic histories. Second, I'll discuss Australia and South Korea's two-way trading relationship. Third, I'll examine our part and participation in regional and multilateral fora, including the Asian Development Bank, the ADB, the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, and the World Trade Organization, WTO. As an economist, South Korea's post-war economic success is frankly mind-blowing. In 1960, average income per person in South Korea was $120 a year in today's dollars. Today, it's over $35,000 a year. In 1960, South Korea's economic development was similar to the average African country. Today, it's similar to the average European country. In 1962, South Korea ranked 56th in the world for average incomes out of the 74 countries recorded by the World Bank. Today, it ranks 16th against the same set of countries. South Korea's success is not just an economic story. In 1960, life expectancy in South Korea was 54, which as a 50-year-old concentrates my mind. Now, average life expectancy in South Korea is 83. In 1972, South Korea was considered an electoral autocracy. Now it's rated a liberal democracy, ranked among the top fifth of democracies worldwide. 
The South Korean people faced hardships on their path to liberal democracy and economic success. Occupation, wars, coups and geographical division. A factor in South Korea's economic success was its decision to, to follow the policy of outward-oriented economic development over import substitution from the early 1960s onwards. This is also true of the other seven tiger and tiger cub economies. Export markets and global economic engagement have proven a reliable path to prosperity. South Korea's decision to draw on funds provided by multilateral development banks, including the Asian Development Bank, World Bank and OECD, played a role in this transformation. As President Yoon said when he launched the Republic of Korea as a global pivotal state following his election in May 2022, South Korea has undertaken a remarkable journey from post-war aid recipient to global development co-partner. In 2009, South Korea became the first former aid recipient to join the OECD's Development Assistance Committee. Many other low-income countries look to the Republic of Korea as a country to emulate. Over the same period, the economic story of Australia is not so transformative as South Korea's. Nonetheless, Australia has a strong history of undertaking economic reforms aimed at creating a flexible and resilient economy. These include the floating of the Australian dollar, the deregulation of financial markets, the broadening of the tax base, and reform of the Reserve Bank of Australia. An integral part of the reform agenda has been the deliberate and sustained liberalisation of trade barriers. In 1973, the Australian government cut all tariffs by 25%. Prime Minister Gough Whitlam was driven by his concerns that protectionism raised prices for consumers, caused Australian companies to become lazy and uncompetitive, and hurt workers in low-income nations who struggled to sell their products to Australia. Now, for many nations, trade liberalisation is conditional. To use the metaphor of the great economist Joan Robinson, countries typically only agree to take the rocks out of their harbours if their trading partners take the rocks out of their, their harbours. But during the 1980s and 1990s, Australia committed to a policy of unilateral trade liberalisation. We went ahead and took the rocks out of our harbours without making it conditional on what our trading partners did. The ideal is no rocks, but fewer rocks are better. As a social democrat, I'm skeptical of calls to increase consumption taxes, because I know consumption taxes are typically regressive. That is, they hurt the poor more than the rich as a share of income. And likewise, tariffs are consumption taxes on imports. So in most cases, they're as regressive as regular consumption taxes. Today, international trade and investment is critical to Australia's economy. It creates jobs and prosperity. It opens up opportunities for Australian businesses to expand. 
Australia and South Korea have come to recognise the value of lower tariffs and capital imports in stimulating and sustaining economic growth and dynamism. Both countries are highly engaged with the world. Exports comprise around one-fifth of national income for Australia and around two-fifths for South Korea. According to the World Trade Organisation's 2022 World Tariff Profiles report, the average applied tariff was 2.4% in Australia and 13.6% in South Korea. Australia's living standards relative to other countries have been highest in periods of economic openness. Over the past two centuries, Australia's economic performance on the global stage has been strongest when we're most engaged with the world. In the late 19th and the late 20th centuries, we opened up to the world and prosperity followed. While Australia only became a nation in 1901, we're home to the world's oldest continuing culture. Indigenous Australians can trace their heritage back more than 60,000 years, a lineage that predates ancient Greece and ancient Rome by tens of thousands of years. Australia is also one of the most multicultural countries in the world. Over one quarter of Australians were born overseas, and another one quarter had a parent born overseas. Nguyen, Kim and Chen are among the most common Australian surnames, alongside last names like Smith, Adams and Jones. Those changes have continued over my lifetime. As a child, when I told my last name to somebody on the telephone, they often assumed it had the Anglo spelling, Lee, L-E-I-G-H. Now they invariably assume the Asian spelling, L-E-E. This diversity provides Australia with a variety of beliefs, traditions and cultures. We regard cultural diversity as one of our great strengths and assets. Australia now has one of the highest educated migrant populations among OECD countries. According to Australia's last census, 38% of Australians born overseas had a university degree, compared with 23% of those born in Australia. South Koreans are now the 15th largest overseas-born population in Australia. Australia's last census recorded more than 100,000 people who were born in South Korea. Those people are even more educated than the average immigrant, with 48% holding a university degree, twice the share for those born in Australia. Sadly for Australia, but happily for K-pop fans, Australia's South Korean-born population no longer includes Roseanne Park, Park Chae-yong from Melbourne. These days, as you know, she lives here in South Korea and is better known as Rose from Blackpink. Earlier I touched on the fact that South Korea is one of the very few nations that's made the leap from low-income to high-income status. This transition had a lot to do with its export-oriented development strategy, built on the principle of specialisation that I discussed earlier. A wonderful symbol of this relationship is in front of you right now. Look at your tablet 
your smartphone or your smartwatch. There's a good chance the components inside it were manufactured for a South Korean-owned company using lithium and bauxite mined in Australia. However, this trading relationship is also a reminder of what Australian economic policymakers can learn from our South Korean counterparts. The Economic Complexity Index, devised by Ricardo Hausman and a team at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, estimates the economic complexity of a country based on the diversity of exports a country produces and their ubiquity, meaning the number of other countries that can produce those exports. Countries are ranked highly in the index if they export a diverse range of sophisticated goods, including products that few other countries can make. South Korea ranked fourth, nestled between Germany and Singapore. Australia ranks 91st, nestled between Kenya and Namibia. This isn't just a mining story. Even before the commodity price surge of the early 2000s, Australia ranked low on the economic complexity index. But we've slipped down the rankings in the past generation. In this regard, we can learn from the world's fourth most complex economy and from South Korea's leadership in advanced manufacturing, including magnets, batteries and electric vehicles. Australians are rightly proud of our mining sector but we recognise the need to develop a more diverse industrial base if we're to grow the economy, create new jobs and remain resilient in the face of global shocks. Including evolving from a simple dig and ship approach in the resources sector to grow downstream industries. A good example is the rare earth sector, moving further downstream to mineral processing and some specialty alloy and metals production. South Korea is a key partner in this endeavour. In February last year, the Minerals Council of Australia and the Korean Mine Rehabilitation and Mineral Resources Corporation signed a Memorandum of Understanding. The Memorandum states that we'll strengthen cooperation on exploration and development of mineral resources in Australia, particularly critical minerals. Last October, a trade delegation of Australian critical minerals businesses accompanied our Minister for Trade, Senator the Honourable Don Farrell, to a critical minerals roundtable with the Republic of Korea's Minister for Trade, Industry and Energy, Lee Chang-young. Next year will mark a decade since the entry into force of the Korea-Australia Free Trade Agreement. The agreement eliminated tariffs of up to 300% on many Australian agricultural imports to South Korea such as beef, wheat, sugar, dairy, wine, horticulture and seafood. CAFTA also removed tariffs on resources, energy and manufactured goods. So it's great news for Australians who are now more likely than ever before to drive a Hyundai. Of course, there's more to our relationship than turning beef into bulgogi and bauxite into batteries. The Australian government is keen to develop critical technologies, such as biotechnology, cyber security, artificial intelligence and quantum computing. These are emerging technologies that enhance national security, economic prosperity and social cohesion. Last October, we announced the creation of the National Reconstruction Fund, 
15 Austra billion Australian dollar, approximately 10 billion US dollar, government-funded independent financier of commercially driven projects. The Australian government's setting aside a billion Australian dollars, approximately 700 million US dollars, specifically for developing critical technologies. We're working with industry to develop co-investment plans that identify high-level investment opportunities and broader reforms to support growth across priority areas. Our two governments are also progressing other discussions. Australia has a small number of market access interests in South Korea, including dairy, beef and horticulture. Australia will continue to work with South Korea to improve engagement on our respective trade priorities, including through our joint participation in regional initiatives, such as APEC, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement, and the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which is currently under negotiation. As well as being linked through CAFTA and our Comprehensive Strategic Partnership, South Korea and Australia are connected through many multilateral institutions. These include the ADB, World Bank, IMF, and European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Australia and South Korea hold the Executive Director, an alternate Executive Director position in our constituency at the World Bank and IMF, alternating every two years across institutions. Australia currently holds the Executive Director role at the IMF and South Korea the Executive Director role at the World Bank. Our World Bank and IMF constituencies are largely comprised of Pacific Island countries. Holding the Executive Director position in these institutions makes Australia and South Korea especially attuned to the needs of these countries, which are among the most exposed and vulnerable to climate change. We work and cooperate in these institutions to the benefit of the region. The IMF's new Resilience and Sustainability Trust has a remit to target climate change adaptation with a focus on proactive and ongoing funding. This makes it well placed to assist countries in our region, including those within our constituency. Australia recently signed agreements with the IMF to lend approximately 1.3 billion US dollars to the Resilience and Sustainability Trust. Australia and the Republic of Korea are advocating for reform of multilateral development banks to ensure their activities and funds are directed towards solving key global challenges, such as climate change. A critical area of our advocacy is ensuring that banks such as the World Bank can provide additional funding to support countries in our region meet their climate goals and climate transition initiatives. Our joint efforts, including through G20 initiatives, are aimed at ensuring critical development finance is available to support vulnerable and developing member countries in tackling these challenges. It'll also support member countries' development needs at a time when their economies have been battered by compounding economic shocks caused by the pandemic and the war in Ukraine. South Korea and Australia are strong voices for engagement, but we face strong economic headwinds. Global growth is projected to decelerate sharply in 2023 to 0.7%, well below the average of 3.1% over the past three decades. Still, that's only a projection. The reality could be better or worse. 
Indeed, it's sometimes joked that the only justification for economic forecasting is to make astrology look respectable. Right now, the economic crystal ball is especially cloudy. In my view, there's four big forces contributing to economic uncertainty. First, climate change has caused natural disasters to become more common and more severe. Second, global instability has been heightened by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Third, it remains unclear whether the world's central banks can bring inflation under control without causing unemployment to surge. Fourth, breakthroughs in artificial intelligence could have massive impacts on society, politics and jobs. Add to that a few immediate challenges, bank failures on both sides of the Atlantic, the impact of interest rate rises on government budgets, and the looming fight over raising the US debt ceiling, and it's easy to see how the world economy could slow even further. Stability is a precondition for economic growth. Stability also means resisting what the IMF terms geoeconomic fragmentation, a policy-driven division of countries into geopolitical blocks. The costs of geoeconomic fragmentation are potentially very large. Welfare gains associated with trade, investment and migration could be reversed. And the costs and challenges of responding to common global threats could become prohibitive. In an extreme scenario, the IMF estimates the trade fragmentation alone could reduce long-term global output by up to 7%. In a recent report, the ADB recommends regional cooperation to prevent harms from export bans and trade restrictions on food and energy prices. This is because countries that are major food importers are among the poorest economies in the region. To mitigate food security risks posed by supply shocks and logistical hurdles, the ADB report recommends policymakers strengthen international cooperation to eliminate trade restrictions, streamline commodity supply chains, promote trade facilitation and cultivate alternative transportation routes. In this environment, the WTO plays a vital role, helping to promote and protect the open global trading system. Yet the WTO is under intense pressure. It's now been nearly 30 years since it last concluded a comprehensive trade round. The Doha round of negotiations failed to deliver comprehensive trade liberalisation. It is, as they say, dead as a Doha. It's hard to imagine a comprehensive trade round being concluded any time soon. Meanwhile, the United States' decision to veto the appointment of new judges has caused the WTO dispute settlement body to lose its quorum to adjudicate appeals of trade disputes. This blocking stance, which began under the Trump administration, has been harmful to the international rules-based trading order. As a workaround, Australia has joined a group of 47 countries to form a multi-party interim appeal arbitration arrangement whose members agree to use this mechanism to arbitrate any WTO disputes among themselves. But it's only a temporary solution. It'd be better if the US was to lift its veto on appointing new judges to the appeal court, so that trade disputes could again be settled through the WTO dispute settlement body. 
Australia, South Korea and other members could then continue to work on improving the dispute settlement body, knowing we had a mechanism available to resolve disputes with any WTO member, regardless of their participation in the interim agreement. A fully functioning WTO, an effective dispute settlement body and a new global trade deal are all in the interests of medium-sized economies such as Australia and South Korea. So in conclusion, today I've been so busy talking about economics, I haven't had the chance to discuss one of my other passions, marathon running. So let me conclude by talking about one of my running heroes. In 1936, Son Ki-chung became the first ethnic Korean to receive a medal at the Olympics, winning gold in the marathon. He was also the world record holder for the men's marathon for an extraordinary 12 years, 1935 to 1947. No one, not even my Australian running hero, Rob D. Costello, has held the marathon world record for longer than Son Ki-chung. Yet in 1936, Korea was under Japanese colonial rule. At the Olympic medal ceremony, Son Ki-chung took the brave stance of refusing to acknowledge the Japanese anthem. He told reporters he was ashamed to run for Japan. The story reminds me of the Black Power salute given by African-American runners Tommy Smith and John Carlos, supported by Australia's Peter Norman in 1968. After retiring from elite running, Son Ki-chung's career was spent coaching other runners, including Suyon Bok, who would break his coach's world record in Boston in 1947. Justice took a long time coming. It was only in 2011 that the International Olympic Committee recognised Son Ki-chung's nationality in his official profile. The story of Son Ki-chung, like the story of modern South Korea, is one of remarkable accomplishments on the world stage, of standing up for one's beliefs and of giving back to the next generation. Son Ki-chung's accomplishments, like the accomplishments of the South Korean economy in the post-war era, are a source of pride to many South Koreans today and a story that continues to inspire people from around the world. Thanks very much.